if I start thinking about what everybody else wants, then I'm lost. You know, I don't I have very nice people, very well-meaning. They come to my studio and they say they, they want this and that and this and that. And I think, well, why, why don't you go away and make it if you know what you want? You know, I mean, so I don't really want to actually... I want. It's difficult enough to just keep doing what I want to do without thinking about the needs of anybody else. Welcome to Gentleman Lars. My name is Lars Carlin. In this episode, I will continue to talk to the well-known British sculptor Tony Cragg, who I talked to in the last episode as well. I had the pleasure to meet him in his beautiful summer house on the Swedish island Schön. What do you think about industrial products? Well, again, it's part of the same thing, isn't it? I mean, human life spent in factories or offices and um, all understandable. And the fact that we can make anything, you know, is quite incredible, isn't it, really? I mean, that we that we make, we need tools and we need extensions of ourselves. And so art history tells you there's the, the figure, the landscape and the still life. So the, the landscape, you look at it this way, the still life, all of this stuff we make, the clothes you put on, the chair you're sitting on, the house we're in, the road we, that runs past us, the, the village we're, ne- we're next to, all of that is a secretion of materials that help us survive. Otherwise, we'd be sitting with our naked bottoms on the rock out here, cold and miserable and hungry. And so we make all this stuff. And that is our culture. This thin, this secretion, this thin layer of material that we make, that we use to mitigate our existence between the, the landscape and the human figure, this is our culture. And so... We do, we need to make things. But sadly, one has to be critical about it because industrialization has meant that we use very simple, the most, well, industrialization is based on economies. An economy has to be efficient. It has the cheapest thing, the cheapest and simplest thing is the best thing. And so in a way, what happens is that the, the systems, the industrial systems are based on simple geometries. Straight lines, circles, or whatever. Look at the table. It's everything here. All the, all of the, all of the. Look at the furniture. It's all straight line, flat edge, ninety degrees. Everything. Look at the, look at the cutlery, the, 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 the crockery, the, the dishes. They're all round, circular. So these are the simplest of, of uh, simplest of, um, of geometries because that's is economic, the best way and the easiest way, cheapest way for industry to make it. Well, isn't that sad? Yeah, but I mean, I think, I mean, your this house and everything looks really nice. But I mean, if you would, um, if it, if you would have it your own way, how would you change it? If you could, you know, ch- change it just the way you wanted to. Well, I mean, the way I make my work. I mean, I think you can actually make things. Uh, I mean, get away from the from the simple need of. I mean, utilitarian. That's the great thing about sculpture. Is everything else we make is utilitarian. Sculpture is a very rare usage of materials. I mean, really rare. I mean, I don't know how many kilograms of sculpture be made in Sweden today, but I mean, I take a guess, you know, not many. And on the other hand, billions of tons of materials have been used in cutting wood and furniture and food and everything else. So, so 
making sculptures a very, very rare human activity. It's a very rare human, and and the category of sculpture is a rare category of objects in our in the world, and so all they can do. They're not. We're not here to be practical. I'm not here to help industry or anybody make a better life for themselves. It's just not my function. I'm only here just trying to find out what's beyond the simplicity of industrial... Well, not, it's not in my, entirely my, my, my activity, but part of what I'm interested in is to go beyond what simple functioning or uh, uh, utilitarian uh, objects produce or how or how they are produced and what they look like because it's pretty boring i mean you walk down the street in stockholm paris london hong kong wherever you like it's all the same it's basically there are differences historical whatever but it's all it's all very simple geometry it's all the same material the windows are the same the the door latches are the same the keys are the everything the heating is the same the flooring is the same Boring, boring. So you sort of you end up in this. So there's an imminent and an virky urgent need to get away from this dumb simplicity because that is not just reflected in the things around us. It is also reflected in our social systems, in our schooling, in our education, in our relationships, in so many levels. I mean, we only live a little bit of our lives. We don't really, any, I don't think any of us really can, will realize our full potentials. I mean, so it is again back to the idea of there are many more things, there are many more things and many more ways that do that are not taken than the ways that are are taken so that that's still um how i don't want to say i don't want to then make t- turn it back and reverse it to say that's a function for art because it's not a function for art but it's definitely an opportunity to see more than what is just there you talk a lot about scale uh, and i wonder how has that changed from when you started out as an artist uh, until today? How you view scale? Uh, scale, well, scale is diff- it's quite difficult because, I mean, as I said, scale is for me a practical thing because it's easy to make smaller. Th- I learn a lot on smaller works than I do on bigger works. The commitment to make a bigger work, if you like, is uh, is much less than frequent than making smaller works and so so that's but also one also realizes and there's also where you make it i mean if you start to make things there's this classic kind of sculptor uh discourse if you like whether a sculpture should stand on a plinth or not you know but for me it's so simple some things I can make on a table. You know, when I make it on a table, I want to see it on a table. I want to see it on a on a raised level. And if some things I make straight from the floor, and it's on the floor, then I don't want to put it on the base. So it's very simple. It's a very just a practical so, so solution for me. But I mean, um, so what I've realised for myself is, and what's very important, is that what's more important is monumentality sometimes. And sometimes small things can be much more monumental than big things. Big things can be big, you know, but they don't have the emotional impact that a smaller object can have on you sometimes. And sometimes big things 
can be quite oppressive. So, I mean, there's always... Mm, I can make work to a certain size, but in the end, the tree next... If you make a sculpture, the biggest sculptures I've made are 12 metres high, something like that. That's kind of big, but every building is bigger. Every tree is bigger. Every aeroplane is bigger. I mean, so what, what, what's, what is big about it? Maybe nothing's big about it. The only thing that's big about it is that it's a sculpture. Ah, this terrible category, this strange category of things. How did this sculpture land on this planet? You know, I mean, people get so excited when you put a sculpture somewhere. It's like, <gasps> because it's, they don't know what it is. They, they know it's, not a, it's nothing you can eat and you can't drive it and you can't, you know, do lots of the, anything with it. It's just a thing to look and think about. So it's, and, it's, and it's not like anything else. So it's also automatically, it's almost automatically a kind of, migrant it's where the hell did it come from you know so you put the sculpture there and people get very upset about it for a while and then after a while you say okay well i'll take it away and they say no 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 it's my sculpture it's our sculpture now it's staying here that's so you have this odd thing so but uh in an urban situation it's difficult to just put out that small thing because it just you know every lorry every every delivery truck is bigger you know i mean that's it But can you be uh, enjoy when people get annoyed by your sculptures? I don't care. I just absolutely don't care because I know they're right. I'm absolutely convinced they're they're the right. And it, I, if I start thinking about what everybody else wants, then I'm lost. You know, I don't I have very nice people, very well meaning. They come to my studio and they say they they want this and that and this and that, and I think. Well, why, why don't you go away and make it if you know what you want? You know, I mean, so I don't really want to actually, I want, it's difficult enough to just keep doing what I want to do without thinking about the needs of anybody else and how people react. Oh, it doesn't mean anything because, you know, people change their minds one way or the other. They like it, and then they don't, they don't like it, and then they liked it. And um, is liking it any, is that so important? You know, it's there. It's a part of a new reality, a new a new part of reality. But why do you keep on doing sculptures still? Yeah, because I'm a sculpture junkie. You know, I just think it's one of the most important things. I really, you know, I mean, I know I've said it's it's, it's a rare human activity, maybe in the big scheme of things, it's not. So why did people make sculpture all those for thousands and thousands of years? It's because it tells you what's not there. You know, I mean, sculpture in the past, can you think all those old things, which is the kind of stuff I don't want to make, but they made serpents and gods and all things that we can't see and believe. I mean, they're all to do, they give a visualization of a world beyond the reality we have. And that job didn't change. And that's all I'm trying to do. I mean, it's just see a little bit further. And, and it is, I mean, as I'm a junkie, I mean, I'm addicted to it. I mean, once finish one thing and there are, It's just not an answer to anything. It's just a dozen new questions. <laughs> and, and so just, you know, I was flummoxed because people say sometimes, is there anything left to do? And that younger people, they stand there and they say, is there anything left to do? And I think, Jesus, you can't, we're scratching on the surface. The sculpture has only just begun. You know, sculpture in Europe, 19th century, was totally figurative, pretty boring, to be honest. I mean, uh, not Renaissance work, but the 19th century, If you think about beginning of the 19th century, the great period of the Romantic, fantastic paintings, wonderful music, literature, everything was always kind of sculpture, zero. 
because it was in the hands of the, you know, sculptors need money, they need materials and time and energy. And so they, it was in the hands of the academies and the academies only gave this kind of, they gave out the contracts or the jobs to, and only under certain, they limited the possibilities. So it's left to some people like Madada Rosso and, and uh, Mayol, Rodin, of course. So individual artists to break through this kind of mold of, of, of things. And then suddenly into the 20th century, you have whoom, Brancusi, Tatlin, Duchamp, uh, wow, a, a fantastic beginning. And what, it, what does that mean? It means, first of all, it's not figurative. You're not copying reality. And you have, on one hand, one person is making structures out of industrial materials. Another person is not representing the human figure re the uh, uh, anatomy, but anat anatomically, but they're representing it in a kind of more abstract manner. And the other one is saying, well, wait a minute. Duchamp is saying, wait a minute. Um, yes, but everything has a form. So everything has a meaning, you know. And suddenly he, uh, the whole world gets opened up into this, into all the possibilities that have, or that, you know, it is not anymore, sculpture is not anymore about making a figurative fi figures, copying figures. It's a study of all materials in the, around us. Every, it's, it's, if you like, put in, an, in its essence, it's about the way materials affect us. The materials and material forms. It's about the way materials and material forms affect us. That's all it is. I mean, if you have a picture on the wall, any painting, you know, quite, let's say quite a, and you show a hundred people that painting, you say, well, what is it about? And they write it down for you. It'd be a hundred totally different ideas what the painting's about. So what's the problem? Are there a hundred different paintings on the wall? Well, probably, possibly they are. But I mean, it's more likely that what people see is not just the painting. What they're seeing is what they've brought to the painting. Their whole history, their whole education, all of their experience in their, in their lives, up to that moment, standing in front of the painting, that is what the, the painting is showing them, what they have in their mind. But that's what minimalists do in a very tough way. They, they kind of they boil the whole thing down, to, so you're not getting very much from them, but you start to realise what you've got you know, already. So all artists, all sculptors, I mean, do an important... These are only individuals. There's no, uh, we're not in big systems. We're not a, you know, they're all, it's an individual vision, whatever it is. I mean, you've got helpers and people that do, uh, facilitators and whatever. But in the end, it's an individual vision of what is, um, that, that comes out of it. So there should be more, you know, the more there are, the more different points of view we'll have, the more different information and ways of seeing things. Has it been, easier for you to work in Germany than it might have been in, in the UK? Well, you know, I, I can't answer because you're comparing apples with oranges. I mean, you, I, as I said, I, I, I went to the Royal College. I had this opportunity very early to be in an exhibition of, of the best, of, of, of renown, to my surprise, of very renowned sculptors in Britain. So I was already in my, my diploma shop was very well. So if I'd have stayed in Britain, I would have been able to do something. I know that, you know, and uh, even today I, I know I can. But uh, in Germany, then you have to come, overcome the idea, yes, yeah, a strange English guy living in Wuppertal, whatever, and what the hell does he want here? So whatever, but 
in a, just a general way, I mean, uh, I've been so well looked after in Germany. I mean, I have a job there for for 30-odd years. I worked in the academy. I met the most fantastic artists and uh, had um, so many opportunities. I, I, so I can't really... But I say one thing, there is a fundamental difference, I think, in the way those two, any nations, cultural contexts, I rather look at rather than nations. I'm not interested in nation. Nationalism is boring. Um, but uh, there, is a, there is a... The British have a empiricist kind of philosophical mentality. They like to see what's there and deal with what is there. Okay, so this comes Hobbes, Hume, and Berkeley, all of these uh, very empiricist ways of working with with, in, 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 with material and life, and so that's uh, so. I think sculpture's not so bad for a British, because you know we're dealing with what's immediately in front of us, and what the consequences of doing that are. are you know? The Germans, that you, they have a totally different tradition. They have a more romantic tradition of uh, of philosophy. philosophy. And so they're dealing very often with what's, again, what's not there. <laughs> and, and in some ways sort of can be, I don't think it's more or less emotional, but it, it gets more or less irrational at certain points or whatever. And, they, and it also has a, so it is a slightly different way of looking at things, you know what I mean? And I can say this, that especially I remember very well when I went to Germany in the 70s, I was, because in Britain, you know, art is like, what the hell are you doing? Oh, you, you're an artist. Okay, so you don't, you couldn't find a better job or something. So it's a really, like, it's a, a bummer's job, but whatever. And so, but in, in Germany, you get there and you get queues in front of museums. And I thought, wow, what's this for? You know, and you realize that the Germans really, ne they really needed culture. They needed, after the, again, similarly to Mario Merz in, or the Italians, these countries, they, the icons, iconography of the past had failed them bitterly. And they were looking for a new culture. And the artists actually really believed they could change, they could supplement or put elements into that culture. So you have artists like Joseph Boyce and later on, I mean, a whole generation of, of Fluxus, uh, 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 not even just German artists, because the people like... Um, Namju Pike were working in Dusseldorf and, and, and many other, Philou and Brecht, and later on in a generation of people like uh, Gerhard Richter, Polke, and, and etc. Et and so they, there's a real, in Germany, there's a real, there was a real need for that. In Britain, it was slightly different. In Britain, when I was a schoolboy, you, you know, every second week there'd be a picture of a Henry Moore sculpture as a cartoon and a woman with a hole through her head or a stomach or something. You know, so it was, it was always a silly joke. And so I think artists in Britain actually, you know, perhaps on the model of people like Andy Warhol or whatever, they got used to it being a sort of uh, a kind of play between the media and and the artists so there's this kind of rapport if you like between you know i think that sort of this idea of shock and awe uh shock i'm not, I'm not sure about the awe but at least uh i think that's very much in part of british british art has been about that about sort of you know wanting to have the public get upset about it but you know so what there is a difference there How do you get inspiration? You don't need inspiration. This is always this. I mean, if it's if inspiration comes, as I've said, out of the last work, I mean, there are enough questions to be answered. 
But isn't life just so exciting? Yes, it's, yes, yes. Isn't it amazing we're here? I mean, that, that, that's inspiring. I don't know if I, I would even call that inspiring. I just, I'm just excited about it. You know what I mean? And I just want to use this. I know I've only, as everybody else, we've only got this one opportunity and I just want to use it. That's all. But do you, do you ever get inspiration from, I mean, like nature or reading science or no. anything like that? I don't really get many ideas from... Well, what I don't do, I'm not interested. I know nowadays a lot of people, you know, I don't look at art for art. That's, I'm not really good at that. I don't go to museums and think, oh, this is great. I've never seen anything I wanted to copy. You know, I think, you know, at least consciously. I'm sure, I mean, I, I knew Richard Long when I was very early and I thought he was a great artist. And of course, uh, he definitely influenced some of the things I made in, in the past. He, but I was almost automatically again not against but looking for an alternative for what he made you know uh so so there were moments where you think oh yes an artist would and understanding what they've done has been very helpful i was inspired i loved minimal art when i was 21 and and i ended up hating it because i thought oh god i don't want to be sort of manic depressive alcoholic they're all sort of so pissed off with everything you know they should do something where they feel happy about life or interested in life And then, uh, so, oh, I'm sorry I say that, but um, true. And then, so, uh, I, inspiration, yeah, of course, why am I here? Because I love nature. I've always been, when I was a little kid, I used to collect fossils and love being in nature. And my grandfather was a farmer. It was most exciting time. So nature inspires me, the richness of the forms, the, the everything in that. But then the contrast of nature with what we do is, become kind of a subject in in a sense and well it is the subject in a way in a way or things we can't see you know we're in this range of what we can see or perceive you know but there's the big universe and there's all the microcosm of everything which there's, there's an enormous range of reality we don't even get in contact with so and the thing is now we live in a culture which is becoming more virtual you know more and more uh we The way I see things is this. I mean, if you have anything, I mean, here's a cup, okay? So the cup is obviously, it's about 12 centimeters high and it has its whatever dimensions, you know, and uh, we're watching it in time. But actually, when the cup's not there, I've still got that cup in my mind. So I have a storage of everything. It's a ceramic, white, hard container, blah. And so, you know, chemically, physically, poetically, historically, everything you know about it. So you look at an oak tree and you think, wow, an oak tree looks more or less the same as an oak tree did 100 years ago. But we know infinitely more things about an oak tree now than we knew 100 years ago. So the balloon of information around the oak tree has increased manifold. manifold. And look at human beings. So we're, we're, we're more and more in a world which is becoming invisible. Things are just becoming, I mean, we're talking about stuff like viruses and molecules and frequencies and waveforms and uh, also economies. They're all not actually perceivable for us. The whole thing is not perceivable. So we, we, the, perce the perceptual level remains the same. Looks like it did 100 years ago. So perception is like, it could have been here any, any, the same all the time. But... What we know about it is just growing and growing at exponential rate. And I think, so that's, a, that's an area of content that one has to sort of deal with. And this is basically what one is doing. You take an object 
I mean, this is the fun, fundamentals of, if you like, the ready-made, and that's why I was saying it was so important. You take, a ready, you take an object which exists, like a pissoir, a book, or whatever it's going to be, a soup can, and you take the terms that are associated to it, the colour, the function, the history, the whatever, and you put it new, new terms around it. So suddenly a soup can or a pissoir or all these other things, they become exciting or new or see them in a completely different way. So you can use them as sort of carriers of, info, of information and you can encapsulate quite meaningful, important information, complicated information, in just by sort of using a ready-made object. That was the basis of it, you know, it become, but that whole thing of, of the ready-made has kind of run its, is running its course, it's been assimilated. I mean, I think work of like people like um, Damien Hirst, I mean, they really wrap it up in a way, you know, they, you know, they're now taking nature and pack, so it's about, it's, it's conservation, presentation and, 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 and whatever else. So, I mean, that, that's, that's an interesting an interesting phase, but what comes after that? I mean, I'm, as I say, my, my result, my interest is then to make new forms. But a man came to me, a guy from the Henry Moore Institute, and he was paid by the British Library. The British Library pay people to go and talk to artists and writers and whatever, and uh, about their life, or engineers as well, about their lives and whatever. So they come on the... But anyway, so he, he came by one day and he wrote the week before he said and his name is John Wood he's a, a, a Dr John Wood he's, so um, I'll be arriving I'll be in the studio at nine o'clock on Monday and I think okay uh, so anyway it's nine o'clock on Monday and and then he so he comes and he says okay so I look I've got to go and talk to everybody I've got to, every now and then because that's what I do is I'm in the studio and every I'm just going, doing the rounds all the time, seeing things, changing things, in conversation, whatever. Uh, and he said, that's okay, you do that, and then I'll be here. Oh, but I'll be here. I'm here for the week. And I said, what do you mean you're here for a week? That's why I asked you what your, cup, what your bag is for. I, just, I said, what do you mean you're here for a week? He said, yeah, yeah. Were you afraid when you saw my bags? <laughs> exactly. Oh, very much so. I thought, oh, no, not another one. And then <laughs> and they said, and they said, And he said, no, so, so we sat down and he said, so what are the first memories? You know, the first memories. And it really went on. It was kind of crazy. So we did, I got rid of him after a week. And then, <laughs> but it was, we did 29 hours of interview. That's very much. Yeah. And we only got up to um, the late 90s. So he came back about six months later and we did another 16. So <laughs> the whole thing is 40, 45 Uh, hours of of recording, which is in the British Library. I do worry about it sometimes. God, I said some terrible things. But anyway, he wanted me honest, and it's probably I shouldn't have been, but I was. That was it. <laughs> That's a very long interview. Uh, Absolutely. That's a horror. And now he recently he just said he just got some... He'd been asked to come back. <laughs> I think, yeah, and I think, wow, incredibly, we're, we're good friends. We turned out, I mean, you spend so much time with somebody, and he's such, he really is a, a, a very nice man. So we, we, um, that was, yeah, that was back um, 17, 18 years ago. So there is something to talk about. Yeah, definitely. It was before before we did the foundation and a lot of a lot of well a, a lot of stuff yeah yeah 
But but then what what do you do here? You besides working when you're in Incheon? Well, uh, just sit and look at things, the the seascape and the heron fishing, and um, sometimes go uh, out with the kayak or take. I've got a motorboat, so go out with a boat, or uh, um, read a lot, play some music. Um, yeah, just catch up on my own on time and stuff. But I go back. Uh, I mean, tomorrow I'm going to Berlin. Uh, to partly to work, and last week I was in uh, in the studio in Wuppertal for a day. You know, so I mean, I you know, I mean, I can't just stay here all the time. So whatever I do here, I take with me, and we have to turn it into to something. Yeah, yeah. It's not holiday. It's not a holiday. Well, I'd like I'd like it to be, but I'm not really very good at holidays. I just get to. Get involved in something, and that's it. Yeah, yeah but you have a fun work. A fun, uh, you have a fun job, <sighs> or not? Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm privileged, privileged beyond uh, any any measure uh, to be able to do what I've what I've done, I suppose. But on one hand, but on the other hand, um, well, it's very. You know, I mean, you you know, you see how I am. I'm I'm very not. I'm quite wound up. I'm quite intense all the time, and uh, sometimes like like to have a break. I'd love to not do it for a while, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't seem to manage that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to take a break, but I just you know, I'm not really. It's not really. Things impinge. You know, I mean, I go on holiday sometimes with my wife. Go for a walk or something. That's quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. I would like to thank GSA Gallery very much for helping me getting in touch with Tony Craig. This podcast is produced by the production company Tonträff.